Hello there and welcome to the Racing Home podcast brought to you by Women in Racing and Simply Racing with support from the Racing Foundation and Kindred Group. I'm Naomi Meller, an equine vet and podcast producer, and in this podcast we're talking about work and family. It's challenging being a parent, whoever you are and whatever you do, and it's particularly challenging being a parent when you work in horse racing. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. So how can we best help people manage being both great parents and valued members of the racing family? Following the Racing Home Research Project, in this podcast we'll be exploring ideas around parenthood and career progression and how to do things differently. I'll be talking to trainers, jockeys, physiotherapists and a host of the sport's experts and decision makers about their experiences, their stories and how together we can shape a positive future for all families in horse racing. I've got a couple of brilliant women with me today with a range of expertise and insights to bring you, talking about everything from maternity pay to shared parental leave to what it's like recruiting your maternity replacement. Gemma Ospedale is a partner in the employment team at law firm Royds Withy King. She specialises in employment law, advising both employers and employees on maternity and paternity rights, flexible working, discrimination and working practices, amongst other things. Gemma started out in racing before becoming a lawyer, doing multiple stud seasons and working at Weatherby's, so she is the perfect person for this interview. As you'll hear later on, Gemma has also written the guidance documents for the Racing Home website on all things legal, so if you need simple, straightforward advice, then you know where to look. Rose Grissel is the Head of Diversity and Inclusion for British Horse Racing. She's employed by the British Horse Racing Authority, but holds responsibilities across the entire industry for DNI, with responsibility for coordinating and implementing the recommendations of the Diversity in Racing Steering Group's Action Plan, and working with all stakeholders to better understand and improve diversity and inclusion. Rose comes from a family steeped in racing, and has ridden all her life, including in Point to Points. She is also currently six months pregnant, so is also, in a different way, uniquely placed to contribute to our conversation. This podcast recording survived a power cut, multiple technical difficulties and me getting COVID, which explains why I'm a little croaky at a few points. So I'm delighted that it's made it this far. A big thanks to Rose and Gemma for their patience. Finding out that you're pregnant is often a wonderful surprise, but many people have no clue what to do next from a work perspective. We kicked off by asking Gemma about what your responsibilities are in the early stages of pregnancy. As a little warning before we begin, this conversation does contain references to miscarriage. The important thing to know is to tell your employer um, really as soon as you can. Some employees understandably will wait until the end of the first trimester because um, the 12-week scan is often the time where if there are going to be problems, then you know, they might arise at that point. Some will tell tell them earlier and say, oh, let's just keep, you know, keep it under wraps until I've got through my first trimester and everything's going okay. 
um, the employee will need to get a form called a MAT B1 form, which Rose, you probably know all about, um, to give to the employer, which will then trigger the ability for the employer in due course to claim back statutory maternity pay. Um, one of the important things is for a risk assessment to be carried out, particularly if an employee is doing fairly physical work. Um, you might find in an office environment, if they're climbing ladders or lifting heavy boxes, that kind of thing would need to be uh, risk assessed and they should probably not be doing things like that, certainly as their pregnancy progresses. Obviously, when we're talking about horses, there's a huge element of physicality involved. Probably the riskiest thing is the riding aspect. Um, I would expect an employer to be you know, very aware of the type of horses that a pregnant employee was riding and not put them on you know, your once counted two-year-old or something. Um, make sure that they have horses that if they are still riding out that are, they're less likely to have an issue with. But of course, any horse you can you know, have a spook and a fall. Um, but also the physical side of it when you're working in a yard, whether it's a stud or, or a racing yard, um, about the physical work that they're doing. And an employer would need to establish what it is the employee does and what may create risks to that employee by a lot of physical work. Um, but I think the important thing is for the employee to be able to feel I can go to my employer and say I'm pregnant. I mean, obviously, a lot of yards are not going to have an HR function, uh, whereas offices, most companies and things do have some form of HR function where they can go and say uh, to the, the HR function that they're pregnant and HR will take it from there. But it is important for the employer to know as soon as possible, really, that the person is pregnant so that they can take the necessary steps. So when I discovered I was pregnant, I decided not to ride at all. Um, and obviously, it's a very personal choice. And many people do ride quite late into their pregnancy. My job obviously is not involved with um, riding at all. Uh, but I guess from an, uh, a legal point of view, if you are a, an employee who is a work rider in a yard, for example, you said, you know, it's good to have that open conversation and say I'm pregnant. But are you legally allowed to have that choice to say, I want to stop riding? Can you give me some other work to do during that pregnancy time? Or, you know, are you, in effect, therefore not doing your job? Well, I think that is a discussion to be had with the employer, because the key thing is to make sure that the employee's health is protected. If if you feel, if you're a work rider and you're riding out and you feel that actually you're not going to be safe, then you should tell the employer and the employer should try and find you alternative work. But of course, that's much easier said than done when you've got a job which is specifically riding out. Um, some of the bigger yards may be able to find alternative work for them to do. But yes, legally, you can certainly say, I don't feel comfortable riding out. Um, I mean, I have come across instances, not in racing, but in other instances where the employee is not able to do their job during pregnancy. They've effectively had to be suspended during pregnancy because the work that they do is sufficiently risky such that they, it, it, you know, it's a risk to their health for them to do it. It's a very difficult situation because then, of course, the employer is left without somebody to do the work. They may need to bring in, um, you know, possibly agency work or additional work riders in this case. So it is a difficult one. But yes, you can certainly say that, you know, I don't feel comfortable riding out. Indeed, you should because if an employee try, rides out against their better judgment and something happens, um, and especially if the employer doesn't know, then, you know, it's a potential problem.
And just out of interest, Gemma, if somebody therefore is suspended or out of work, presumably there is no obligation for the employer to pay them in that instance. Well, I mean, that's the other thing, because actually they sh- should be suspended on pay um, because it's, it's, no, it's not the employee's fault that they're pregnant, but they're, if they're uncomfortable about the risk, um, the employer should suspend them on on pay. But of course, you know, from a practical perspective, that's far more difficult. The ideal is if um, they can be found some form of alternative work to do, even if it's on a part-time basis or something within the yard or, or whatever. And Rose, I was just going to dig into that li- a little bit. I was going to ask you, if you're happy to talk about it and comfortable, why you've chosen not to ride at all at any point during your pregnancy. Are you happy to dig into that a little bit? Yeah, I think... Um probably a number of reasons but I guess my age is a factor so I'm 37 so I'm kind of very conscious that when you go through kind of maternity the NHS stopped calling you geriatric um, these (laughs) days but that's what you used to be referred to if you were pregnant over 35. Talking amongst quite a lot of my friends a lot of my friends similar age to me have had complications with pregnancies um, and also getting pregnant in the first place. We were very lucky to get pregnant um, very early on from from trying, but we sadly had a miscarriage. And then it took us uh, another year to get pregnant again. So very conscious that I was very anxious when I first uh, got pregnant again as to would the same thing happen again? Biological clock ticking. Will we then, you know, have to go through IVF and which I know many people do very successfully go through, but also some people don't. So, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in one sense to have learned from a lot of people around me of their different situations, navigating kind of pregnancy and how some people have really positive stories and some people find it more challenging between kind of me and my husband. And he has a kind of quite a similar position that we realize that if anything was to happen to our our baby once um during that pregnancy and if it was due to me falling off riding which sounds like a very you know it is a selfish thing for me to do in that it's just my hobby it's not my career or my job it's purely for my enjoyment you know I know I would never really be able to forgive myself for that and I'd always be going oh what if and you know whatever because you never know what's going to happen um, so yeah, it was, it was quite an easy decision to make for me personally. Um, and, uh, it, has been a, it's been tough because in one sense, I haven't, you know, I, I ride a lot and, um, it is very much a really key part of my life. And I've been lucky that I haven't felt too unwell. I haven't really had much morning sickness. So I've been feeling very able to ride and be very active. Certainly now I'm getting a bigger bump that I think probably feeling a bit less kind of flexible and things that would probably restrict myself from riding. But definitely during the early phases, you know, I was getting serious FOMO from other people, you know, riding and racing and things and me not able to take part. But it's only for nine months. So it's something that I was very happy to kind of um, make that decision on really. I'm so sorry to hear you had a miscarriage, Rose, and thank you for sharing that because I think that is actually a topic that has been flagged in a couple of the earlier conversations I've had that, you know, we're talking about parenthood in this series, but miscarriage and fertility and 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 infertility is another really big area, not just in terms of your kind of employment rights, but just something that we don't really talk about. And it's easy, people are often not well supported through that 
at work as well. And I think in the racing industry, you know, we're probably not amazing at talking about those sorts of journeys and issues and and moments when they happen, despite the fact that they are, you know, really significant when they happen. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I'm very happy to talk about it because I, I agree with you. I don't think that, um, I think there's more conversation around it with you know, behind closed doors in one sense. As, as I said, you know, I've got a lot of friends around me who have had similar experiences, but not everyone does have that. But miscarriage is so common, as is fertility issues. I've only learned because I've heard and spoken to other stories from, from friends or friends of friends who, who have gone through similar. Touching on what Gemma was saying earlier around when you tell your em- employer about your pregnancy, I think in the advice I've read, uh, formal advice, you know, they kind of say most people tell after three months, but, but actually that first three month period, that's probably when you're most likely to be feeling the most unwell. And yet, you know, if you're feeling similarly unwell, but you didn't know you were pregnant, you would probably have a sick day and, and things like that. But because you haven't necessarily told your employer, I think a lot of people just suck it up. And then, as you say, if you do have a miscarriage, um, which yeah is is hugely common. You know, there's the emotional support that you don't get because you haven't told anyone. But yet, you know, is it is that a good thing or not? Because you know, everyone's different and people deal with things in different ways. It's a really interesting one. I think a very personal preference, really. Just because miscarriage is common, it doesn't make it any less painful for the people involved. Like many of you, I've had multiple friends and colleagues go through miscarriages, some of whom stayed at work when their miscarriage was actually happening because they didn't want to let people down, and others who never told their employer that they'd been through one at all for fear that their desire to have a family might be used against them at work. Rose is right that every individual is different, and it's only by lifting the lid on these situations that we normalise the conversation and remove some of the stigma and shame. I wasn't expecting Rose to talk about this, but I'm extremely grateful that she did. In a bit of a gear change, we then moved on to discussing what happens during pregnancy. We all know that racing is a super busy industry, and whatever job you do, there never seems to be quite enough time. People are always stretched, and having time off for your medical appointments can seem like an inconvenience to your employer. I asked Gemma what your rights are around this area. Does your boss automatically have to give you whatever you ask for? Well, you are entitled to time off, paid time off for antenatal appointments, yes. Um, Often employers will ask justifiably if you can make them at at least inconvenient time, either first thing in the morning or last thing um, at at the end of the day. For an office-based worker, that's probably what would be requested for working in a yard it's probably more likely to be the middle of the day when you know there's a brief lull in things happening before evening stables but it would just depend on what the routines were in a particular yard but people are entitled to paid time off for antenatal appointments Um, I think from the employee's perspective it's helpful for the employer if they can limit the amount of time they take I say that because I had a call with um, someone I know who runs a stud a few months ago and the employee was just taking as much time she was taking most of the afternoon to go to an appointment that was 10 minutes away and um, the lady who owned the stud was tad annoyed and said well what can I do about it and I said well the best thing to do is actually just have a word with her and say look absolutely you're entitled to take time off but not excessive time off and you know she was 
basically probably swinging the lead and this the the employee concerned had a bit of a a reputation for pushing her luck and I think that's probably what she was doing so it works both ways um yes you're allowed to have time off for antenatal appointments but it's helpful for the employer if you can try and make them as least inconvenient as possible and not take excessive time um because what you know if employers find that their employees are just you know using it as an excuse to have extra time off it's it's not terribly helpful so there's there's a bit of you know there's balance both ways really but there is a legal entitlement to paid time off and rose at what point did you sort of feel that you wanted to open the conversation about being pregnant and and do you have any thoughts on building the sorts of relationships with your employer where you know both as a manager yourself and uh, somebody who is managed about having good relationships for opening those lines of communications positively in a, in a workplace? Yeah, so I told uh, my line manager and uh, our people and culture team, I think uh, about three, between three and four months. I don't think it was the day of the scan, uh, the 12-week scan. But partly I was keen to have those conversations early from a perspective of what I was doing in my role so we were you know it was at the beginning of the year when we were starting to look at resourcing within the department uh, for the year ahead and starting to say well who's going to do what and what money do we need to fund these positions so quite specific to my role uh, so it, it made sense for me to to share it then I guess I didn't share it before then I, I'm not really sure why potentially just again in case anything had gone wrong and, um, you know, avoiding those kind of awkward conversations. But I, I think what you raise about kind of having those relationships is really important. Um, my line manager has more recently been on maternity leave as well. So, um, you know, she's navigated this space with the same employer. So was very comfortable asking her all kind of random questions. And similarly, I have a really good relationship with our people and culture team um, because uh, I work closely with them as well. I must admit, I found it um, quite strange at the beginning because I have those relationships with those individuals on a very um, kind of professional level. So most of the time, even though, we would, you know, uh, and our relationships has, has grown over the last two years, mainly on Zoom, which you know, you have a bit of a two minute, you know, how was your weekend or what were you up to kind of thing before. But, you know, and maybe we've delved a bit more into each other's lives because of Zoom in one sense. But then to suddenly talk about something very personal, which I was very much from the beginning. Oh, I'm telling you because I have to tell you I'm on, and I want to know what the practicalities are of what I have to do next. Whereas the automatic response I got, which was quite rightly so, was, you know, congratulations, you must be really pleased. This is very exciting. Whereas I was still in a quite a nervous state there of, oh, yeah, you know, this is all feels a bit self-centered and um, talking about me and celebrating me. Whereas I was a bit, you know, still a bit anxious about the pre pregnancy at that stage. So it was very interesting time for me to um, you know, be the spotlight you know, have the spotlight and everyone talking about me at a time when I was just, what do I do now? And I just want to know the practicalities. So, um, but once you obviously got over the congratulations and uh, which is, you know, don't get me wrong, obviously hugely grateful for that. And that's, that was absolutely lovely. I think it has helped definitely having good relationships with those, those individuals who I've had that conversation with. And then I guess over time, people have slowly 
other people I've worked with slowly kind of found out or I've told people. But it it is very strange when you have to kind of announce it as if it's it's very it's it's just odd. I don't I can't really put my finger on it, but I feel like I need to tell people because I'm not going to be here and we're recruiting. But um, yeah, it's a bit awkward to be like, oh, and any other business in this meeting, by the way, I'm pregnant. Woohoo! You know, it's, it just feels a bit odd. I can see Rose's point here about the big announcement. If you're someone who isn't shouting from the rooftops about your pregnancy, and you're used to keeping your professional and personal lives separate, then this can be a big deal. Finding the balance between graciously accepting people's good wishes and maintaining your own privacy can be tricky. And as with so many things, it's really individual. I'm in my 30s, just about, and I've had a lot of conversations over the last 10 years or more with friends about when the right time is to have children. Spoiler alert, there is no right time, and it seems that everyone's just making it up as they go along. But where does your job fit into that? And what about maternity pay and family planning? Rose raised a really interesting point on this. Certainly there's an element I always think is interesting about where you you know where you start actually considering your family planning versus your career development and your career progression because actually when you're applying for a job you don't have access to see what their maternity policy is and they can vary like again doing kind of polls across friends everyone's maternity policy is completely different and they might kind of probably end up at the same place but they're all worded differently and they all have kind of different percentages for how different amount of time for advanced maternity pay. Certainly, in most cases, you wouldn't know when you're applying for a job. But then the key thing, I think, is that you only really get advanced maternity pay if you've been in employment for two years. So then, you know, when you're applying for a job, you kind of think, okay, well, I need to, this isn't a job that I'm going to see if it's okay and I can leave within a year, because actually, you need to stick there for two years. And then, you know, if you're in that two-year period and something goes wrong, then you're like, well, actually, I need you know, I would like to have kids in the next year or so, but am I now stuck in this job? Because otherwise, if I went to another organisation, then you know, will that, how will that affect the financial support I get when I have a kid? So then certainly you start to kind of consider your, you know, where your family planning comes into what your career development opportunities are. And, you know, you need to kind of think in, way in advance before, okay, actually, I'm suddenly pregnant. <laughs> So we've talked a little about building positive, understanding professional relationships and having good conversations. But what happens when it doesn't go right? Gemma is there to advise both employers and employees when the need arises. And she told us of one such case that she'd worked on. Yes, she uh, came to me. I know her husband and she came to me. She'd been employed for very a lot under two years. She got pregnant. And she had very, very bad morning sickness. So she was off for several weeks and she was sacked. And the employer said that they were sacking her because she hadn't complied with the sickness absence procedure. And we said, no, you sacked her because she's pregnant. The reason she's been sick is because of, of morning sickness and she's, she's, which is discrimination because she's pregnant. And uh, by the way, she has complied with the sickness absence procedures. We ended up in the employment tribunal. I couldn't believe that they wouldn't settle. I, I actually got to the point of thinking, is it me? Have I done something? Have I not advised her correctly? It was quite bizarre. And we won hands down and the respondent, the employer, got a real pacing from the, from the tribunal. But that is an example of a woman who is pregnant, who has absences, and an employer trying to get around the, the 
you know, the, 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 trying to sack her by getting around the fact she's pregnant by re trying to rely on some other um, reason for sacking her, i.e. that she hadn't complied with the sickness absence procedures. And frankly, even if she hadn't, they'd have been on a sticky wicket. Um, but it was just the most blatant act of somebody being sacked because they're pregnant that I've come across, I think. I think we sort of think of the old days of this capacity for discrimination when pregnant. And to a lot of modern corporate employers, um, it would seem like that's a thing of the past. You're smiling at me. But do you do you still see that quite a lot in your practice? Like how widespread do you think that sort of discrimination, overt or otherwise, is still present, Gemma? I think it is fairly widespread. Um, I think we don't really learn about it because nothing happens. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, we had a lady who uh, instructed us sometime last year um, she'd come back from maternity leave and she wasn't allowed to return to the job that she had left. And they tried to push her into another role that she didn't want, trying to make out for her that it was a better role for her. And she resigned eventually and claimed that she'd been constructively dismissed. Um, I think a lot more of it goes on than people necessarily realise. Uh, I think a lot of women feel they do come back from maternity leave, they're sidelined um, and they don't want to make a fuss about it because they don't want to prejudice their chances of getting alternative employment elsewhere. So they just leave and go and find another job. So I think there's a lot of it that you don't actually hear about. And also women getting pregnant um, where the employer thinks, oh, crumbs, I've got to do this and that and the other. So just sideline them uh, because basically they can't be bothered or they don't have the time. And I think the employees, especially if you're about to go on maternity leave, you don't particularly want to jeopardise the maternity pay and have issues in that regard. And you do have the right to return, which is very important, actually, because it's far easier to return off maternity leave to a job that you've got the right to come back to than find another job off the back of just having had a, a baby a few months ago. I do think it's more prevalent than uh, people perhaps appreciate. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people just decide not to do anything about it because they want an easier life. Which is understandable, I guess. And actually, when you're talking about things like your right to maternity pay or the capacity to come back to a job that you know at a point at which you already are feeling potentially a bit out of the loop, potentially a bit vulnerable coming back. You know, there's a lot of people who say about when they come back off maternity leave that there's a period of instability when you first come back anyway. And so actually going back into a new job it could be quite overwhelming for people, I think, maybe. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think probably a lot of women will think, well, OK, I'm, it's not ideal the way I'm being treated, but better the devil you know. I'd rather come back from maternity leave into a job I've got a right to return to with people I know, with a situation I know, get my feet back under the table and see what happens from there. Um, and the other thing, some employers do offer enhanced maternity pay, i.e. over and above the statutory minimum, but conditional upon the employee returning and staying there for at least you know, three or six months or something. So they may feel they don't want to lose that money. So they will come back for the stipulated period and then maybe look to move on after that. And Rose, um, we spoke a little bit the other day about <clears throat> the necessity to recruit your own replacement, which is something that you're going through at the moment. And it's not something I'd really thought about before, but that thing of you're going off to have a baby and because, you know, you're head of your own department, essentially, you are the person that is responsible for recruiting you. How have you felt about that and how have you found that that process, I guess? 
Yeah, so it's definitely something that I didn't consider or hadn't even thought about previously to, to getting pregnant. And actually, I had to have the conversations internally about the need for the role. And in one sense, uh, as part of the policy at the BHA, had to take her pr- proposal to the to our reward committee to, in effect, um, pitch to say, uh, the role needs to be replaced and this is the reason why. Yeah, and then just ensuring and considering who, well, I guess having the the expertise and knowledge of knowing exactly what is involved with the role um, and it very much being a short-term, it's a fixed-term contract. So knowing that you kind of want someone to be able to pick it up where you left off but also be able to kind of keep it going but hand it back to you, it's almost like... I don't know. I mean, perhaps it's like um, handing your child to a babysitter and then having it back. I don't know. I'll soon find out. Um, But yeah, it very much feels like, you know, moving now mentally into um, kind of getting to the end of coming closer to my maternity leave, in which case getting a lot of stuff done that I want to do before I go. And I'm certainly hearing that from others across the organisation or other people I work with, you know, that all let's get that in before you go kind of attitude which obviously kind of puts a bit of pressure on you know the next couple of months but also ensuring that once I do go that things are in in place so that you know I'm not leaving it in a kind of really disorganized manner and my handover is sufficient so that someone can pick up and has a support to you know keep keep everything going on track while I'm away so that hopefully when I return, which I guess is a bit of a question mark as well, you know, things are going really well. Mm. It's a funny thing, maternity recruitment, because I guess, like you say, you don't really know exactly how long you're going to be away for. I mean, you you may well have an idea in your head about how long you think your maternity leave is going to be. But I guess the bottom line is you don't really know. And secondly, for the person coming in, it's hard, isn't it, when you want to do a job really, really well. You want somebody who's going to be competent and take the reins and look after your your role while you're not there, but also be willing to give it up and give it back uh, without the prospect of a full-time, long-term job at the end of it, which actually, when you say it out loud, is is quite a tricky balance to strike, I think, Rose. You know, it's a bit of a tricky one, but I think fundamentally, just trying to look at the biggest, pi- you know, the bigger picture... I have, you know, penciled in uh, taking the whole year, but I can, I know I can um, give eight weeks notice um, ahead of coming back. So I think, you know, I'm keeping a very open mind with that, um, which is nice to have that flexibility. But at the same time, um, you know, you don't want to mess the person around that you're recruiting either. And that uncertainty on both sides, I think, is something that is probably not discussed openly enough amongst expectant mothers. Because I think when you've been a career woman for want of a better phrase and you're used to knowing what you want and where you're going and what your career trajectory is there is a lot of uncertainty about a having a baby to begin with is like a whole new um field and whole new thing when it's your first child but just the return and the kind of consequences for your career you know we talk quite a lot about this concept of the motherhood penalty which exists from a career perspective, that degree of uncertainty, I imagine is probably quite unsettling for some people. Yeah, I think um, for me, certainly, I mean, a lot of my friends have, 
you know, had a phased return to work or gone back part time to start with and things like that. Whereas I guess the fear for me is I would struggle to see how my role that would suit my role. Uh, it's definitely a full on five day a week role, um, you know, and I work with a lot of people who voluntarily give their time to kind of push this agenda forward. Um, so there's an element of nervousness, I guess, from my part is I, I don't really know what, what and, and, you know, partly avoiding thinking about it because it's such an unknown, um, which probably is a positive thing because it is unknown at the minute. So there's no point worrying about it. But time will tell as to what that return looks like to the workplace. And Gemma, you you mentioned um, in a previous conversation that we had that it's not uncommon for you to see scenarios where employers, and I'm not saying at all that this will happen in Rose's case, by the way, um, but where employers love the person they've employed while someone else is on mat leave and just think that they can keep that person on. Can you talk a little on that and the experiences you've had on that situation? It's less frequent now than it used to be, I don't know, 10 plus years ago. But at the one time, it wasn't uncommon for employers to ring up and say, I need some advice. I've got um, someone coming back from maternity leave. Her replacement is much better than her. Um, I don't want her back. Uh, What can I do? And I have to give them the bad news that if they want to replace her with the person who is currently covering for her, they're going to have a problem. Um, And of course, they don't like hearing that. Um, a lot of the time I have found that the issue has stemmed from an underperforming employee before they went on maternity leave and the employer hasn't dealt with it. So, of course, you know, they just tend to think they can kick things, kick cans down the road. And then suddenly um, somebody's pregnant and they're coming back off maternity leave. They've got performance issues and now they want to start dealing with it. And the inevitable thing the employee is going to think is you're only doing this because I've been pregnant and I've come back on maternity leave and of course they've got no documentary evidence to demonstrate prior to maternity leave that the individual was um, underperforming um, there's that issue and then there is the issue as I say of, of the the replacement being much better than the um, employee and you know th- the only real solution if there is one if the employer is con- doesn't want the person back is to have a conversation with them about terminating their employment and paying them a sum of money to sign a settlement agreement because that's the only way they're going to avoid being sued and then of course the employee has got the opportunity to say well I want a lot of money for not coming back um, because I'm going to find it very difficult to get another job because I need flexible working because I've got childcare commitments so you're going to need to pay me quite a lot of money otherwise I'm going to go to an employment tribunal which sometimes happens. Um, The other thing we see a lot of is flexible working requests, which certainly the whole environment around flexible working has changed exponentially since the pandemic. Um, Prior to the pandemic, employers did not want people working from home, want them back, you know, full time working in the office, don't like the fact that employees are requesting to work um, part of their working week from home for childcare commitments. And, you know, if the employer is... is, um, sensible about it and they have got justified reasons for the person not working from home they can refuse the request but of course now with us all having worked predominantly from home for 18 months or so that's a far more difficult well-nigh impossible argument to put forward that you know we need you in the office because because actually turn around and say well I haven't been in the office for 18 months and nobody suffered so what's the problem well I I think the key thing is communication on both sides 
communication and keeping an open mind, certainly from the employer's perspective, keep an open mind about the person returning to work, about the value that that person adds to the business through their experience of it and how long they've been there. Um, And be prepared to be flexible and communicate. Communication is the most important thing. And not just by emails, talk to them. Um, In person is ideal if they're working remotely, as a lot of us have been, Zoom calls or telephone. Um, But I think that is, for me, that's the most important thing. And for the employee side, tell your employer you're pregnant, ask, work with them to make the transition from working into maternity leave that much easier for both parties. So for me, I mean, I work in diversity and inclusion, so I'm kind of quite familiar with having conversations with friends about pay policies. And one thing that struck me before I even got pregnant was the difference between every organisation's policy or what they do in there, whether that's advanced maternity pay and for how long. And it seems to me that every organisation does something different you know what it, it's quite hard to navigate what's actually a good good situation for you at the end of the day and what's what's not when i first read through our um internal policy you know before i was pregnant you know actually understanding what that meant at the you know at the end of the day with your paycheck etc with kind of new terminology and things like that was actually quite difficult I just think in one sense, if we simplified it as a, if as an employer, you could simplify that in some way. But obviously it's, you know, Gemma will probably add in here that a lot of that terminology is um, standard terminology across from government policy, et cetera, on uh, each different thing. But it seems to me that it is just kind of over complex um, unnecessarily. And I just wish it would just be a bit more obvious in one sense. Yes, I, I, I sympathise with you there. I mean, I was part of what I was doing with the Racing Home Project is looking at policies, for want of a better word, although I prefer to call them information documents for those purposes, about maternity, paternity, adoption, all the various things. And I, I took a standard policy and adapted it because it needed to be in language that people would understand because these the policies go into staff handbooks and they're all fairly fairly structured and the language is 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 very sort of not legalistic but it's it's quite specific and I needed these documents to read to somebody who hadn't got a clue what they were looking what they were facing in a way that's understandable so I spent quite a lot of time actually just adapting the language to make sure that it was comprehensible to you know people who really hadn't got a clue about maternity pay or how maternity leave works but I can see that it is a minefield and what's really a minefield is the shared parental leave and pay and how that operates because it's incredibly complicated I mean we have found that not many um, employers have had people asking for it um, for lots of all sorts of reasons I think Um, but it's complicated to operate. But that's a fundamental thing for progression in this area with if we can move to a space where, you know, it's more common for shared parental leave between kind of male, female or male, male, female, female roles, then, you know, that kind of only can 
build greater equality across the workforce. Um, but if it's so complex for people to do and to get their head around, it's never going to happen. Well, I think that's right. Unless they do make it, they, they replace, for instance, the two week statutory paternity leave with forcing the father to take parental leave. Uh, shared parental leave, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, the notification um, requirements alone are very complex. And of course, you're dealing with, the more likely is that you're dealing with um, employees who are from two different employers. So they may have two different sets of policies to look at as to the type of leave they can take. It's, it's, it is a minefield. It really is. In our situation, um, my husband's self-employed. And so... It, there's a whole kind of another navigation of the system um and you know if he doesn't work the business doesn't do or happen or he needs to find someone to replace um him doing that work so you know there are so many complications i guess that you know you have to think through that you kind of think you know i definitely always thought growing up yeah i'm not i'm you know going to go back to work and i want my husband to be able to do as much as as me um partly so that they're involved as much um but the reality is it just doesn't, hasn't worked out like that so um I guess every situation is different and you have to kind of navigate your way through that situation in the best way you can that's it for today thanks for listening and don't forget to follow the podcast to receive all new episodes as they land it would really help us if you could rate the podcast and leave a review telling us what you'd like to hear about. This is a resource for you and everyone in the industry, and we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, so see you then. Have I lost connection? I think I've been talking to myself for some time. It looks like it, yes. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>